Well, it's great for us to be able to spend this afternoon together. Um, just a, a bit of a brief introduction, perhaps, for some of you. Um, perhaps you're jumping in partway through this series as we've been looking at the first letter of Peter. And uh, Peter is writing to a group of people uh, which in lots of ways, although they lived in a world which was so different to us thousands of years ago, in lots of ways they, are, uh, they were in a similar situation uh, to many of us. They had reached the point where in the world that they lived in, which had been for all intents and purposes kind of rolling on and everything was fine, they had suddenly been confronted with the message of Jesus. They had been compelled by that message and they, their lives had been changed dramatically so that they become followers of Jesus. The outcome of that is there are obvious implications that, that this, this idea of the, uh, the, the concept of being, as Jesus described it, being born again or being converted or whatever other description we want to use to describe this compelling intervention of Jesus in somebody's life it always and always must result in, in some sort of change in our lives. It can't just be a kind of an acknowledgement. If it's simply an acknowledgement, it is an, an acknowledgement of a set of truths. Uh, it's an, a recognition, yet yeah, I believe that that is true, that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God that uh, he did die and that he did rise again on the third day and that he did return to heaven and that um, he is going to return again at some point. All of those are, if you like, objective claims which we might be able to step back from and say, yes, I, I'm, I, I believe that, but that doesn't make us believers in Jesus. It really doesn't. Uh, because after all, there would be those uh, heavenly beings, those uh, opposed to the message of Jesus, who would look at all of that and say, yeah, we agree with all of that. We know who Jesus is. One of the things that we see in Jesus' ministry again and again is that those who are in spiritual terms opposed to him, they know exactly who he is. They know that he's the Son of God. That's not a point of dispute. The point of question and the point of challenge is whether he has compelled us to become disciples or followers of him, to be those who believe and trust and have given our lives to him. So what does it mean to be compelled by Jesus? What does it mean to become a follower of him? What does it be mean to become shaped and to live according to the Bible? That's a big question, isn't it? Something that we, we've got to work out, we've got to understand so that we don't fall into the dangerous place of saying, yeah, believe that, believe that, believe that, as statements of truth, but it never hitting our lives. What does it mean to live biblically? In 2005, there was a guy called A.J. Jacobs, and uh, he, he went on a, on a, 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 life, a, a year's mission, uh, which resulted in a book, that he published. Uh, and the book's title was this, one, uh, A Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. He was from a Jewish background, and he spent eight months living, uh, following as literally as he possibly could uh, the Old Testament, and four months following literally as possibly as he, uh, literally as much as he could uh, the New Testament. 
in all honesty, it was quite obviously a book that was written with his tongue very firmly in his cheek. But it does confront us with something, doesn't it? It does challenge us that when we talk about that idea of being biblical, when we talk about that idea of being a follower of Jesus, how do we take this, this book, which is God's Word to us, and how do we live it out? Because we quite simply cannot live it out literally. We can't do that. We can't just take this and, we, and follow it through. But then we are also... Um, if we are true believers and come to that f- point of faith in Jesus, we are also people who have reached a point where we know that somehow God is speaking to us and my life is going to change as a result of this. What does it mean? What does that look like? What does it mean? What did it mean for these guys 2,000 years ago, as, as Peter wrote to a whole group of churches that had been established in modern-day Turkey, uh, where they were just working out from their Jewish heritage into this idea of becoming a follower of Jesus, this continuation of the message of the Bible. How does that work out? What does it mean to be changed? Let's have a, let's have a look, because I think what, what we understand from this little section is we start in nursery. Um, or in kindergarten, or, or play school, or however we want to describe it, we start as babies. That's how we start. We don't want to do that, most of us. We don't want to kind of realize that that's our starting point, because after all, you know, we want to kind of be out there, we want to be grown-up people, uh, and actually what Peter is saying is, listen, start here, and in actual fact, keep going back to there in one sense. Keep going back to a point where you are reminded that you are in comparison to the huge, colossal, unimaginable wisdom and glory of God, we are all like little babies. Do you know, in one sense, I find that hugely encouraging. That is hugely encouraging to me to realize that that's actually how my Father in heaven looks at me. He, he looks at me like a, a little baby who's, or a little child who's just kind of trying to work stuff out. I, I find that hugely encouraging when my rebellion against God seems so huge seems so impossible for me to get beyond. And then I realize, actually, he looks on it very, very differently. He looks on me like a little child in one sense. Oh, yeah, it's serious. We can't kind of just say, oh, that doesn't matter then. Of course not. But we can say that my loving Father in heaven looks at me as a child that needs to grow up. So let's see firstly how Peter writes to it. The starting point we see, it's the back end of chapter 1. Now, bearing in mind, if you just perhaps 
being introduced to the Bible. We are very, very used these days to the idea of the Bible being written in books and, well, in, certainly in books, but in chapters, broken up into chapters and verses. When Peter first wrote this, he didn't write in chapters and verses. That's a later introduction as the, write, as the compilers and gatherers of the Bible tried to help us to kind of keep track. You know, if I tried to describe where we're going to start reading in something which wasn't broken up into chapters and verses, it would be really confusing. One of the challenges is that there are questions about exactly where the chapter breaks should be because it was originally written as a continuation. So what we see here is that our, um, this particular translation says verse 25 logically sits with the beginning of chapter 2. Chapter 1 verse 25 is act like an introduction because it gives us who, um, who is, the, if you like, the, the recipients, the, the people who are listening to this. He says this, and this is the word that was preached to you. In other words, as this is, can imagine that this letter is turning up in different churches. Uh, and it's being read out. That's how it, it would have worked. It would have been passed from one church, copied perhaps, uh, and then sent on to another church. And they would make maybe a couple of copies and pass it on uh, to different churches. And, and this letter would kind of permeate all of the churches in this particular region. And then it would spread into other areas. Uh, and they would, they would read it. They would gather together as believers in Jesus. And they would, somebody would stand at the front, literally, and read it. This was a message. This is how it, this is effectively, in one sense, how Peter preached to hundreds of churches in all sorts of different places in the first century. He, somebody would stand up and read it. And so what we've got here is the words that were first uh, read. Uh, and here we have, and this is the word that was preached to you. In other words, this is something that was described to you before. We've already got it in chapter 1. We've been looking at it over these past few weeks where we've been seeing what it is that was being preached to them. What has been preached to them is the idea that Jesus is no less than the Son of God who is our hope. He is our living hope. That's the center of the message. But there's something else that's going on there, isn't there? The target is those... Um, Who's, who have received it. Where does, can you, that's not obvious, is it? Those who've received it. But it is there. The reason is, because what he says is it's, this is the word that was preached to you. This is a group of people who have now continued to gather together and receive this letter this would have been preached to way more people than actually were gathered in that location. But the people who are there are the ones who have responded to it and it has, it has become their message. They have embraced it. They have taken it on board. It has become what they have believed. So when Peter says, this is what has been preached to you, he's effectively saying, this is what you have taken on board and you have received. This is what you have accepted. And, and he uses that as a springboard to say, because you've accepted it, 
go on and live like this, which is what we're going to see. This is another of those turning points. This is the uh, message which you have received, or this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, do this. That is incredibly important. He's saying your life change comes as a result of you accepting Jesus. That's the order. How often do we get it wrong? How often do we try to impose life changes when there's no acceptance? That's just, it's just wrong. In the first century, that just, just wouldn't, have worked, wouldn't have worked any more than it does now. What Peter was saying was, your life has changed because you've accepted this. This is a tiny, tiny little group of people. Small group of people who, who are receiving a message which is completely new. We are 2,000 years later with all of the implications of the, the growth of the Christian message for the past 2,000 years. We need to hear that more than anything, I believe, which is this. The people who need to live differently the people who need to be changed are the people who have accepted the message of Jesus. It's that way round. Receive it and therefore be changed. I want to just remind you again and again throughout the Bible, that is the pattern that God insists on. The, the obvious place where we see that is where we talk about the, the law of God in the Old Testament. You know the Ten Commandments and everything that was received by Moses. Who received it? Who received that law? God's people. They were already God's people. Do you see the pattern? They were already God's people and therefore they then received a pattern of how to live as a result of be, being God's people. That's the pattern. So if, if, if we're in that kind of idea, perhaps you're looking on at the idea of the Christian faith this afternoon, you think, what is all this about? Let me encourage you to realize that it is not a rule book. It is not a rule book. It's not a set of standards and qualifications that God insists on so that you will be acceptable to Him. It is not that. It is, come to me, believe in me, and as a result of that, here's how you to live. And I'm going to be with you as you seek to live that different, marked out life. So the first thing we see is the target. Second thing we see is the change. What, what do we normally expect? We normally expect some sort of very visible standards, <laughs> the things that we do. Now, Pete, just stop a minute. Peter's writing to a set of churches, new Christians. He's saying, because you've accepted this, this message, therefore do what? Meet at these particular times, do this, do that, 
do these various things? Look what he actually says. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. That is dramatic. (laughs) It's dramatic because of the scale of the change that Peter is talking about. And the reason I think is because of this. It is just easy to conform to a set of rules, relatively speaking. But what one of us has the ability to rid myself of malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, slander, all of those characteristics which I know me and I know that I'm, I'm going to struggle for life with all of that. And then Peter says, listen, because you've accepted Jesus, rid yourself of all of that. It's actually about an inside change, not an outside appearance, isn't it? It's about what's going on on the inside rather than what seems appropriate on the outside. It's dramatic in this second sense because it ties in precisely to what Jesus said. You know, one of the things that I find just so compelling about Jesus is that he is consistently in the face of hypocritical religion. He is just consistently in the face of it. And there is a point at which he is talking to religious leaders and he says this, that they were getting wound up about all of the kind of laws of religion all the things that you should do, all of the things that are appropriate to do. And Jesus says this, do you not understand that it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come from? Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly, all these evils come from inside. That's where they are located. That is the source of the issue. Now, absolutely, there are all sorts of reasons why in living in this world as it is, the experiences of our past, the shattered brokenness of many experiences can result in all sorts of twisted results and outcomes, of course, but they are all ultimately misshaped responses for a broken world. It is from inside that the problem comes. And Jesus says this. He says, there's the problem. That's exactly what Peter is saying. He's saying, change your heart. Theresa May, this past week, has announced or confirmed that there is going to be a law being passed to make psychological and emotional abuse a criminal offence. In one sense, I absolutely 
applaud her for that. It is despicable and so wrong the patterns of behavior and the kind of actions of certain individuals against the other. It is absolutely right that there is a response that says that that cannot carry on. That is wrong. On the other hand, for all that I agree, all that I'm behind the idea that psychological and emotional abuse is an absolute crime against other people, I know and you know that it will not stop the problem, will it? You know it will not stop the problem. We know that it's wrong to do. We applaud the stand that is being taken, but we know that it's trying to close the, the gate after the horse has bolted. It is going to carry on happening. Why? Because deep down in our hearts is where the problem is located. There is a heart issue. Theresa May, I, I just am with you, but I know that it's not going to solve the problem. Secondly, this is dramatic. Look at what it says. Rid yourselves of all malice. Now let's just stop there. All anger. I want you to get rid of all anger, Peter says. To this group of Christians who are in this fledgling new faith that is beginning to move throughout the Roman Empire. I don't want you to live with angry hearts. Especially when you hear of the spread of the persecution of fellow believers by the Emperor Nero. That's the context in which he was writing. He's writing to believers who have been compelled by the message of Jesus, and he's writing to people who are beginning to hear of possessions being taken, people losing their homes, families being literally broken up, people losing their lives because they have committed to being believers in Jesus. And Peter says the kind of belief that this brings is the kind of heart change that, that can live without malice in the face of that kind of opposition. Now, what, what, I just want to stop there because I want to just remind ourselves again that the church has got that so wrong in the past, from a group of people who were on the receiving end of persecution, how many times has the church been the perpetrators of persecution? That does not sound like the, the call that Peter is making to this group of believers. When the church becomes the persecutor, they lose sight of the message of the gospel. Let's make that really clear. When the church becomes the persecutor, they are no longer upholding the true message of Jesus. They have lost it. Because Peter makes it really clear. In the face of astounding persecution, you are to live without malice and without hypocrisy in the face of that. That is dramatic. And you say, well, hang on a second. <laughs> how, how is that even possible? 
How can, how can we do that? Well, Peter goes on to remind us that that is a journey. It's a growing up. And it starts in the nursery. He says this, like newborn babes, or like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. He's saying this, listen, you understand that you're a believer in Jesus, you understand that you're a follower in Jesus, but you, you, you've just literally been born. <laughs> now, now, start feeding and start growing up. There are many Christians who, who are struggling with all of these kind of anger, frustration. It's spilling out into life. There are all sorts of challenges. And, and here we've got it right in front of us. Here's the, here's the remedy to that. The remedy is not some kind of psychological intervention, although there are occasions where that might help. There are occasions, but ultimately, as a believer in Jesus, heart change comes from growing through drinking spiritual milk. That's it. Comes from drinking spiritual milk. There are moments in, in our, we understand more of who we are as people. There are moments when we cannot, where we've got psychological barriers that we we need to overcome, and there are all sorts of great interventions to help us do those various things. Uh, and when they happen, that, that I'm just thankful that God has given the world the wisdom to intervene in that way. That's just great. But you know, the outcome of that ultimately can only result in us being proud that we've overcome it, ultimately. The, the outcome has got to be much deeper. It's got to be growing up spiritually. Where does this come from? Well, in a sense, Paul, Peter's connecting it to what he's previously said in verse 24 and 25 of the previous chapter. He's already talked about the Word. And he's saying, grow up spiritually in the Word. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. When we looked at that, the idea of the Word of the Lord enduring forever, we recognized that the Word resides in two locations and is communicated to us by the Holy Spirit. The Word resides in the living Word of God that we have with us in the Bible day to day and the person Word of God in Jesus Himself. Both of those, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the forming of the, of the, of the uh, Scripture, both of those, in some sense, this is the speech and the, and the action of God into this world in the same way as Jesus is the present action and Word of God into this world. They are, they are present together. They are there in front of us. And in other words, Peter is saying, you want to grow up spiritually? You want to grow up spiritually? Then spend time with Jesus. And you say, hang on a sec. He died 2,000 years ago, and I believe that he rose again and he's returned to heaven. 
absolutely, I'm with you. But you know what? You can spend time, time with Jesus in his word and by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's how you grow. You know, it works really simply. And yet it is so simple, we are just, very often, we are just, I don't know, Maybe, maybe it's too easy for us and we think it's got to be more complicated. Or maybe we think that um, we can't really commit ourselves to that. There's got to be something more. There's got to be all sorts of other ways that we can work it out. It is quite simply this. Spending time with, in the company, or, or rather, let's put it this way. The company that you spend time with shapes the person that you become. It does. The person that you're, the people that you spend time with shapes the person that you become. The company that you keep shapes the person that you become. And Peter is saying quite simply, make Jesus your company. You make Jesus your company, and you are. You are going to grow up. You are going to be feeding on spiritual milk, and you're going to grow up from being a baby. You're going to grow up into, you know, from, from nursery. You're going to reach infants. You're going to get to primary. You might make juniors before Jesus returns again, or, or, in, or he calls you home. And, and maybe some of us might reach into senior school very few of us are going to make sixth form. Uh, and maybe one or two of us are going to make university, but we're never really grown up. The only time we really grow up is when we see Jesus again. Because that's when we are truly in his company. Do you see the progress? We, we make company with him now, and we grow up in that company so that we are ready to be with him in company with him. That's the journey that he is encouraging us to take. Now, that is, on the one hand, that's an encouragement for all of us to say, make sure you make good company. In other words, make sure you make company with Jesus. Make sure that the company that you really rely on is company that shares that same company. But also it's this. Accept that the church you're in is a nursery. It's a nursery. We are not in university. We're not even in high school. We're in nursery. And being in nursery means that there's going to be a whole load of people who ain't grown up yet. They are not grown up. We are not grown up. Therefore, expect that there is going to be some envy kicking around the place. Expect that there is going to be some hypocrisy kicking around the place because we have not grown up yet. But one of the marks, do you remember he said earlier, is that we love each other, is that we understand that we're all growing up at all sorts of different rates and we are patient with that growing up. We're growing up together, but we are in nursery folks. That's where we are. You might be looking on. You might have been really, really offended and hurt by somebody who's a believer in Jesus. 
They've not behaved in a way which is even close to appropriate. And what I would say is, do not measure the value of the message by the secondary messenger. Measure it by the primary messenger, Jesus himself. Why? Because he is the only one who has lived in this world without all of those stripes of the heart. So Peter goes on and he says, you've tasted that the Lord is good. Why is he good? Because he's done it. He's lived without malice and deceit and envy and hypocrisy and slander. He's done that. In fact, when they nailed him to a cross, he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Oh, that's just filled with bitterness, isn't it? Not. (laughs) It is filled with the complete opposite to any idea of malice. He's been dragged through a kangaroo court. There's been lies surrounding his judgment. He's been nailed to a cross, tried effectively by both the religious hypocrites and by the secular elitists. Both sides of the fence are nailing Jesus to a cross. And the outcome is, he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. How how big is that? How incredible is that? How much of a model of precisely this kind of living is Jesus? Why is he good? Because he's the only one who's ever been successful. That's why Peter says you've got to be in him. Because you'll never do it. But when I'm in him, his success becomes my success. His ability to be nailed to a cross without malice becomes my triumphant ability to be free of malice. Even though in my heart I continue at times to display malice. But Jesus sees, or God the Father sees me through him. That's radical. That is radical biblical living. That's where it starts. It starts with a change of heart. A.J. Jacobs. <laughs> I just want to sit down for a coffee with you, mate, and I want to say, do you know what? I, I, I applaud you for raising the idea that we cannot live literally according to the Bible. But if we start to live literally according to this, how dramatic would the world change? How dramatic would the change in the church be? If we relied on Jesus to grow up and to start to be free from these problems of the heart. Theresa May, I applaud you for seeking to clamp down on all of those horrific issues of emotional abuse. But let me say, it will only be a punishment for those who've done wrong. It's only this that can actually, truly, completely, and utterly change the heart. So the question is, as believers in Jesus, are we going to accept we're in nursery? And are we going to start drinking the milk? We're going to start drinking the milk 
Or are we just going to carry on saying, now I'll tell you what, I'm, going to off, I'm off for fish and chips. <laughs> I'm off for something else. Something else that seems just so much more satisfying. So much better. So much more grown up. <laughs> or are we going to say, now I'm going to learn how to grow. 